Welcome back to the PAs in the podcast by PAs for PAs, where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past. Physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the title of choice, and where we are redefining what success means as a physician associate. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, Kristen Burton. Kristen is a practicing PA working in pulmonary and critical care medicine, but today she's going to talk to us all about money, financial independence, how much to invest, how to get into real estate investment, how to know if you have enough saved for retirement, and how to get to that magic number where you don't have to work another day in your life and you are completely financially independent. Without further ado, here she is, Kristen Burton. All right. So today on the show, we have Kristen Burton. I'm so excited to get talking about financial topics. You guys know that I love to talk about money just as much as Kristen does. So Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I am super excited to be here today. Awesome. So today you guys can expect to hear from us talking about financial independence. We're going to stop by and talk about investing. Specifically, we're going to talk about how much we need to be investing, and when should we start investing. And we're going to wrap up with a discussion and getting Kristen's thoughts on real estate investment. So financial independence, what is it? Why does it matter? And why should we care about it at all? (laughs) Well, I think really there's a big fundamental lack of understanding about what financial independence means. It sort of sounds like this mystical la-la land where nothing matters and you don't have to work and you know, you're know you on a beach indefinitely. And really, genuinely, financial independence as a, quote, destination is really just a mathematical arrival point. It's literally a number, a gross number across all accounts where you say, okay, at this point in time, based on you know, all of this sort of research that backs um, safe withdrawal rates in retirement and investing in the stock market over long periods of time, I'm probably to a point where my money can support me indefinitely and not run out before I die. That's all it is. It's a mathematical place and every single person really genuinely should know their number. We all have to arrive there. It doesn't matter if you arrive there at 72 or if you arrive there at 52, we all have to arrive there. So the question is, what's your number and on what timeline are you on track to achieve it? So how do we find our number? (laughs) Well, so there's a, there's a easy way to figure it out. And then there's a, a much more in-depth, um, probably more appropriate, detailed way to figure it out. So I'll give you the easy way. You don't need any sort of visualization to figure this out. You look at your household annual expenses, not income, expenses, and you multiply that by 25. So let's say your household annual expenses were 100,000, yours would be 2.5 million. That is, again, based on the sort of background information of withdrawal rates and retirement. And most importantly, that's based on a traditional retirement term. So that's for somebody who says, hey, look, I want to retire at 65. I want to be comfortable. 
things paid for. Um, I don't want to be worried about, you know, living off of my social security payment. What number am I looking for? That's the quick and dirty way to figure it out. Again, there's a lot of nuances and you could spend a decent amount of time really getting a detailed calculation for yourself that includes things like inflation and large one-time expenses that might occur in retirement, like moving or replacing a vehicle. But for somebody who's maybe 30 years old, they're like, listen, I don't need an exact number. I just need a, a direction or a, a ballpark goal. That is a very easy way for you to get that. And then when it comes to the timeline, so say we find the number and we know what our household expenses are. And I think most people can sort of off the top of their head, oh, this is about what's going out a month. This is about what's going out a year, multiply by 25. And then they're going to see a number that may make their jaw hit the floor because it feels like a lot of money. So how can we work backwards from that number to say like, hey, what is my timeline and how the heck do I know if I'm on track or anywhere close? Yes. Okay. If you don't mind, before I answer that, I want to go back to something that you said. I think you and I, because like we are um, people interested in personal finance, both of us feel like that. Like, oh yeah, most people know. Oh, I know. Yeah. Okay. Of course you do, because that's who you are. Because I'm a nerd. <laughs> yeah, the more people that I ask, very few people do actually know that. Okay. And it's really only people that have some type of budget who actually know like after taxes, after investing, what truly do I spend in a year? So I would encourage everyone, if you're not a budgeter, to create like two or three months of budgets. And then you can maybe do a three-month average, multiply that out for the year. But um, if you're not like Tracy and I, and you're not interested in personal finance at baseline, you may surprise yourself. Okay. Good. Yeah. I think um, sometimes I forget just quite how nerdy I am. Like I could like show you my spreadsheet, right? Like this is like a thing that I am definitely nerdy. My husband has, he's like, we spend money. Like money exists. Like, I mean, like he knows like vaguely, um, but definitely if we were playing trivia and it was like, guess the monthly expenses, like I would be closer than he would be for sure. Yes, exactly. And it's like, if you have a spreadsheet, if you're a spreadsheet person, then like you're inherently in your own class. I also have a spreadsheet, so I can relate to this, but. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right. So those of us who don't have a spreadsheet, you can, do you recommend budgeting going forward? Or if someone's sitting here thinking like, well, I don't really run my life on a budget, which I think is a whole separate discussion. Um, can they do it based on credit card statements or their normal checking account? Like, can they look backwards at what they've been spending? Yeah, you can do it um, retrospectively over the last, you know, 30 or 60 days. And then because I feel that everyone should really have a prospective budget moving forward. Actually, that's the easiest way I think to make a prospective budget that actually could work for you is to just go back and do a retrospective budget of like, all right, over the last 60 days, what did this actually look like for our house? And then you can use that not only to figure out your expenses, but then to plan moving forward of what's actually going to be kind of a reasonable budget breakdown that you could stick with when you're trying to make one that's for the month coming ahead. 
Yeah, I think if you don't look backwards and you just guess, you will fail. Because if last month you spent $400 on restaurants and this coming month you say, I think 40 sounds reasonable, right? Like, I think we're going to do 40. Then you're going to be two days in and you've blown your budget and you're feeling frustrated. So I agree with looking back and using that to inform at least a starting point. A budget based on what you've been spending is better than no budget at all, for sure. Absolutely. So now that we have our number, how do we, (laughs) and we know that not everyone's as nerdy as the two of us, um, how do we go about saying, hey, how do I know where I am and how fast I'm moving? How can I figure out what my investing rate is and inform that timeline? Because I think people care less about the number and more about when. When will I get there? Sort of when will I be work optional? When will I have the choice to not work anymore, to work less, or to adjust my hours based on those numbers? Yeah. So the five minute napkin breakdown would really be to Google compound interest calculator. Um, I use Money Chimps all the time. There's a million free ones on Google, and they'll ask you just a few numbers. They'll say, What's your current amount invested, current principal? And you'll put whatever you have in your 401k or your Roth IRA or whatever it is. What is your annual contribution? So you would do whatever you're investing per month times 12. And then the tricky part is is it'll ask you to project your future rate of return, which of course is difficult. Um, I think normally when I'm mapping this out, I tend to plug in 8%. I think based on historical returns that are maybe um, real returns, not nominal returns, that's a reasonable number. Although there's plenty of stuff saying, hey, look, maybe we should be using something in the 6-7% range when doing these projections. Regardless of what you choose, you would plug in those simple numbers. You would plug in your current amount invested, your annual contribution, how many years you're going to do that for, that rate of return that I mentioned, and then it'll give you a number. And so you can just sort of play around and say, okay, this is saying what I'm doing now over 25 years is going to put me at from our previous example, 2.1 million. Well, I need to hit 2.5 million and I'd like to keep that same time period. I don't wanna lengthen it out. So then you would increase that annual contribution. Alternatively, if you said, hey, look, you know, we're contributing the most that I think we possibly can. Um, this is my goal number. Now, what's the time frame then? Like how, just play with the years and then you'll see, okay, you know, how long until I get there? Um, it's difficult to use a tool like that because that's not how life works, right? All of us live in a state of flux and, you know, maybe your focus is on, for example, credit card debt or something else right now and your investments may be lower, but they'll ramp up in the next year or two. So it's not that um, this is like a detailed financial analysis, but it is a very solid five-minute test of, okay, am I anywhere close to where I need to be? Or do I plug in those numbers and then sort of watch my jaw hit the floor as I go, I'm about a million dollars off or I'm retiring at 77, dang it, you know, Um, and it'll kind of get you to where you can at least be in the ballpark of on track. Yeah. I mean, I think if we are talking to medical providers about this, this is like the vague once over, you're like taking the temperature of what things are. This is not like a detailed physical exam, right? So we're saying kind of, where are we in general? You know, 
do you often find that people plug in these numbers and they're like, oh, I have so much more money. I'm going to have so much more money than I thought I would need. Gosh, I I wish that was true. <laughs> Mostly it's the other way. Most people are like, you know, most healthcare professionals aren't really getting started until at least late 20s if they're lucky, probably 30 and beyond. And those later investors, you get into this sort of position where you miss the extra compounding years that early investing provides you. So I think most people that are playing with this when they're 30 or 31, maybe they have some investments, but it's not a ton yet. They go, oh, dang, I've got to kick it up a notch. It's the few people who they're like, well, when I was 19, I worked at XYZ Place and my dad made me invest in a Roth IRA. Those are the people that go, oh, yeah, I'm on track. I'm good to go. Maybe I can even let off the gas. But for those that don't get started until later, I I think it tends to go the other way. So someone is doing that. They do the math. They look up the compound interest calculator. They plug in their numbers and they realize they're behind. And by behind, I mean, wow, that's not the age I want to retire at. Or, you know, that's not the amount of money that I want to have when I reach 65, whatever they're using as that yardstick for saying kind of, how are we doing? What is your advice to those people? Because they still have to pay their mortgage and eat and send their kids to daycare this month. So it's not like suddenly their whole paycheck can go into investments. You're right. You're right. But I do think this may be a little bit too um, subjective, but I think people underestimate in general how massively their financial life can change in five years. There is a really common saying like we all over underestimate what we can do in five and overestimate what we can do in one. And I find that it is extraordinarily true. Um, if you say, okay, I'm going to make these few cutbacks. I'm going to drop this and this and this. We're going to apply that towards investments. Maybe it's not a massive amount of money. But when you do that and you're consistent with that and you extrapolate that out over five years, you can actually really shift your financial situation. For perspective, I've only been a PA since 2016. And as we're recording this, it's the end of 2022. So 2016, I had no assets. I'm married now and I was married then. And we had over... $200,000 in household debt. Fast forward to 2016 to end of 2022, we have over a million dollars in assets with no debt outside of one mortgage on a rental property. Now, in any one moment, I never felt like, wow, we're on a rocket ship to the moon. Everything is changing rapidly for us. It doesn't feel like that. What it feels like is small incremental change done well over a long period of time. So if you look at that and you go, I can only move the needle by this much, is it going to be enough? I would encourage you to A, take a big picture view of what you want to accomplish and how long it might take you to get there. And then B, remember that really it is small incremental change applied consistently. If you make the change and then you drop it after two months, you're not going to get there. But if you make the change, even if it's small, you keep on going, you increase your investments by 2% a quarter, you just keep sort of trudging along, you will get to a point where you look back and go, man, 
I can't believe where I am now compared to where I started. Yeah. And I think that this is true of lifestyle changes, of money changes, of things that you do in life. Like tomorrow, you will wish that you started today. So thinking more about it before you make an actual change is not changing the amount of money that you're going to have in retirement. Knowing that you should be investing more, knowing that you're not investing enough, that doesn't make you rich. <laughs> that makes you thinking about getting rich. That doesn't actually create change in your financial future. The other thing I'll say too is at the beginning, to be frank, there's a period of sacrifice. And you don't have to sacrifice everything. You don't have to have some miserable life, but there's a period where you go, hmm, I would love to upgrade the house, but I'm going to wait another year. I would love to upgrade the car, but I'm going to wait another year. That vacation sounds incredible, but we're going to do the budget version this year. We'll do the luxury version in three. And there is some of that. People are a little bit inherently afraid of that. I think social media in particular has projected this sort of view that everyone has this incredible lifestyle. And if you don't have it, you're somehow behind or you're broke or whatever. And you need to be like them and have a house like them and have the clothes that they do and the Louis Vuitton that they do and all of that. Um, and there's just a period at the beginning, if you really want to win, where your life just isn't super Instagrammable. And that's okay. I think it's just hard for emotionally for all of us, myself included, to go like, I'm comfortable with my choices. I'm happy with my life projection, my trajectory. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, even though it's maybe not as cool as what Sally or Karen has posted on their story today. We interrupt this broadcast with a very important announcement. You are not making enough money. Your practice and your physician do not understand the value you are adding to their patients, and therefore, you aren't earning what you're worth. If in the past your requests for a raise have been met with one single word, no. If you're working more hours than ever and seeing more patients, but you're not making any more money and you're feeling pissed about it. If you feel like you've hit the ceiling of your income band, this guide is for you. I've compiled the five most costly and most common mistakes that PAs make when asking for a raise, and I've told you how to avoid them and what to do instead. Download your free guide at tracybingaman.com slash mistakes. And I think that what we see on Instagram is things like it's hard to photograph joy or contentment or feeling great. Like you can have a day where there is nothing worthy of a picture or a story and nothing that kind of looks good, but it can feel really great. And that's the thing that you miss on social media is that you don't know how that person is feeling. And sure, there's words in a caption and you could make an argument for that. But mostly those things are things, not feelings. And right now I have 4,000 friends on vacation. I don't even have 4,000 friends. So how that is possible, I have no idea. You know, I have like 17 friends that are pregnant, four that just got engaged, eight with a new car, and everyone is in the Bahamas right now. Like it's physically impossible. And yet it's what you see because you're looking into the lives of people you either know well or once knew well or somehow someone you knew knew them or with Instagram and TikTok, it's like a literal stranger from the internet who 
you wouldn't even say hello to if you saw at the grocery store. So this window into other people's lives, it's not necessarily a blessing, especially if you're in a season of sacrifice. So how can we get out of the habit of comparison or how can we prune our social media feeds so that we don't feel quite so crappy about our own lives? <laughs> I will tell you what I do. This works differently for everyone. I'll tell you what helps me. First off, the real influencers, right? Like people who promote just like buying stuff, clothes, bags, whatever. Um, I've either unfollowed or muted all of them with one exception. I have one person, she does like value stuff. A lot of her clothes are from Amazon or Target. I'm like, yes, you will stay. And when I don't know what's in style or what's cool, which is often, then I'll go to her page and be like, okay, this is cool, check. And then outside of that, the only people that I really allow being in my feed are people that are going to grow my mind. I'm obsessed with that. What you put in is what comes out. So for me, it's like people that are talking about mm, short-term rentals that are going to like level up my game in that, or people that are talking about mindset or time management or things that are really going to grow me as a person. Everything else is muted. Honestly, I'm horrible. I don't even really look at my own personal friends and real life social media because I'm like, well, I'll just talk to them. Like they're the real people, right? Like I'll send them a picture of my kid and they'll send me a picture of their kid. I don't need to get on their social. And then outside of like, I've narrowed down my feed. Now I narrow my time and I'm, I'm always working on this. I'm not like perfect at it. The mindless scroll, it just has to stop. It just has to stop. Honestly, I think that we could all probably learn three languages with the amount of time that we spend just scrolling through the feed. It's not healthy. It's not growing you. And instead you're like going down this mental vortex of weird comparison and negative emotions. And I think it's best to just turn it off. So I'll limit myself. Maybe I'll be like, okay, you have 15 minutes on social go. And outside of that, I don't scroll. I try to really produce content and not consume as much because I just don't think that it builds my life. And I try to be really cognizant of that. The one thing that's allowed me really over time to like genuinely win with money, whether it was in the process of paying off the student loans, which was so arduous or building wealth or whatever it's been, it has been filling my mind with people who are winning at that. So I've transitioned what I listened to, I've transitioned what I've read to match my stage of the journey, but there's always been a source for me of like, man, I'm struggling today. These student loans feel like they're never going to end. Let me go listen to these stories of people who did the same thing I'm doing. They made sacrifices. They paid off their debt and they're done. I would listen to that. I remember listening to that with tears in my eyes, thinking like, how do I just get there? You know, I have to keep doing what I'm doing. But if you fill your mind with that, you're like, all right, I'm on the path. Let's keep going. Let me make the sacrifice. But if you fill your mind with so-and-so's new Louis Vuitton bag, it just changes the way you view what you're doing in the most unhealthy ways. So be super cognizant of that. What sources you're allowing to sort of input into your brain um, because via what whatever personal development people call the reticular activating system, you really genuinely shift your whole brain to focus obsessively on the things that you're bringing in. So if you're bringing in a bunch of comparison and you're bringing in a bunch of rampant consumerism, your brain focuses entirely on that. Mm, yeah, for sure. 
So I think that we should change gears and give people some of what they're hungry for relative to investing. So I would love to debunk some myths. I would love to talk about how to incorporate this into life so that it's not this constant sacrifice. And I think to your point that you said earlier, people think I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm never going to have fun again. I'm never going to see the inside of a restaurant unless I'm working there. I'm never going to, never going to. And they think if they sacrifice now that they're saying, this is what my lifestyle is going to be forever, which I don't find to be true, especially once you kind of make some traction and get over some of that initial um, investing oomph that you need to really get going. So let's talk about, you know, we've done the numbers. What's the timeline? Talk to us about 401ks, 403bs, Roth IRAs. What are those things? If you put money in it just in itself, is it invested? How do they work? Yeah. So that's really where most people should be starting. 401ks, Roth IRAs. It's not sexy. It doesn't sound super cool, but um, taxes are the biggest expense that we all pay in our lifetimes and investing in a tax favored way is super important. So most of us in the healthcare professional space get some type of employer match in your 401k or 403b, which is the nonprofit equivalent of a 401k. So for almost everyone who has that match, the very first step you should be taking in your investing pathway is getting full employer match. So if your employer says, you know, you need to put in 5% and we'll do 5%, then you go ahead and do 5% in your 401k. And that's step one for you. In my mind, that trumps everything else because that's an 100% return on investment. You're not paying 100% interest on anything. Nothing else is a guaranteed 100% return on investment. So for me, that's the beginning. And I think that a lot of people underestimate the value in that. But um, I've posted a bunch of numbers on social and on my website in the past. If you're making $100,000 a year, a 5% match extrapolated out of your working lifetime ends up being hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars. Now you factor that in with maybe two people um, in a household, maybe medical professionals, or even I personally know many medical professionals with matches in the 8 to 10% range. We're talking about millions of dollars on the table. Um, so first things first, employer match. Now, when you do a 401k investment, it's going to come through your employer, same through 403b, and the money will be invested. Either you select your investments, which I highly recommend, or your employer is going to select something for you, but the money will be invested. It may be in very expensive things that you wouldn't have chosen, which is why I recommend you do your own investment selection, but it'll go in there. Now, what people end up doing with Roth IRAs is missing the investing part. So a Roth IRA is a totally separate account from your employer. And it's taxed in the opposite of a normal 401k. So if I'm going to put money in my 401k at work, for if I'm doing traditional contributions, what's happening is I'm telling the IRS, hey, I'd like to take a tax break this year. I'm going to reduce my taxable income by this amount of money. When I'm retired, I'll pay my taxes then. And I'll pull the money out and I'll pay ordinary income taxes at that time. The Roth IRA is the opposite. So you would say, hey, IRS, I'm going to get a tax benefit later. I'm going to get paid. So therefore, I've already paid my income taxes. I'm going to invest that post-tax money into a Roth IRA separate completely from my employer. And then when I'm retired, that money is going to be totally tax-free for me. 
Now that is such a good deal that the IRS has put a limit on how much you can put in there each year, and it's much lower than a 401k. So in 2023, it'll be 6,500 per person. What happens is the Roth IRA, you have to understand that when you put money in the account, it's just in the account, it's not invested. This is one of the biggest money mistakes people make is they're like, I'm, an, I'm doing awesome, I have this auto contribution, I'm building my Roth IRA, but they don't realize that they actually have to go in and buy investment funds, so the money never grows or returns in the way that they're anticipating. So once you have your money in your Roth IRA, you go in and you select investments, and once that's happened, now you truly are getting that compound returns that we talk about all the time with investing, and you'll see the long-term growth that you're hoping for. And this is not something that you have to do every month that you're contributing money. You open the Roth IRA, you fund it, you decide where that money goes, and then the other dollars that you put in go into those uh, particular funds or whatever you've purchased unless you make adjustments. You can absolutely set it up that way, but it doesn't automatically happen. You can set up to, there's two separate things. You can set up an auto contribution to the account, which basically says every month, pull from my checking, put it in my Roth. But then you can set up an auto investment where you say, I want to automatically buy these funds every month. So make sure you know when you're doing your automation, which is absolutely key to making sure this isn't a big task for you, that it all happens in the background. Make sure you have an automatic investment set up, not just an automatic contribution. Otherwise, you'll have to go in and manually invest yourself. And that takes away a little bit of that hands-off, auto investing plan that we're all hoping to have running in the background. Yeah. Awesome. So first step is full employer match. Second step is the Roth IRA. Then where do you go from there? That's really for most people that are especially early in their career where their anticipated income in the future is probably higher than it is right now. If that's you, a lot of times it's 401k match and then um, Roth IRA, the next account that's really incredible to use to invest is a health savings account. There's so much confusion around this topic that it's something you really have to pay attention to the nuances, but this is the most tax favored way to invest, period. Now, the big confusion that happens often is FSA versus HSA. Which one is use it or lose it? Which one do you get to keep the money? An FSA, flexible spending account, is use it or lose it. You fund it. If you don't use the money by the end of the year, poof, it's gone. A health savings account, HSA, is totally different. The money rolls over. You can invest the money. You keep this account lifelong. It is not a use it or lose it basis. So don't get the two of them confused because you can have an FSA for medical expenses and you can have an HSA for medical expenses. They're very different. Now for the HSA, you have to have a high deductible medical plan. So when you go to enroll in your benefits, it'll say, you know, do you want this PPO plan? Do you want a high deductible plan? And if you have the high deductible plan, you will be eligible for the HSA. Some employers even offer a match or an employer contribution into this account separate from what you do, which can really continue to sort of add an extra layer of snowball benefit to what you're doing. But Here's what happens. You put money in the account. Most HSAs are a checking style account. So if you're most people using most HSAs, you put money in, 
pre-tax. So you get that tax benefit now, and then you would go spend the money on your medical expenses. So you save money in taxes. Now, what very few people do, which I think is like less than 4% of HSA users, the last I read, is you use this as an investment product. So you would put money in, you get the pre-tax benefit, incredible. Then you would go in and you would invest it. So you move it out of that checking style account into an investment account. The money grows tax deferred. And then if you use the money in retirement for medical expenses or qualifying expenses, I should say, it's tax free then too. So what happens is you basically had a 401k and a Roth IRA that had a baby and you can make it to where if you're doing this correctly, you're literally never paying taxes, right? You're getting that tax benefit on the front end and then you're getting tax free in retirement. Now, most of us that work in the healthcare space have very unique insight to how much medical costs truly are for the last two, three decades of life. So for any of us in this space, our ears should perk up and go, wow, you're telling me there is a tax sheltered way for me to prepare for what this massive expense will be? Heck yes. Where do I sign? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So is there a general rule of thumb for how much we should be investing relative to our household income or expenses, how old we are, what do you do to figure out how much like we should be shooting for? The average person general rule of thumb is 20% in gross, 20% of gross income invested. Now I'll tell you if you're like starting at 40, that's not going to be sufficient. If you happen to be one of the few people that start at 18, you might be able to let off the gas. But if you're, you know, average person and you just go, listen, I don't care about this stuff. I just want to make sure that I'm hitting kind of close to where I should go. Give me a percentage. It would be 20%. There's some data or some kind of common stuff that's thrown out and saying maybe 10 to 15%. But most of those sources are things that came out in the 90s. And things have changed dramatically. So if you listen to like the Dave Ramsey approach, he'll say 15%. If you look at some of the older books written in the 90s, like kind of classic money books, like The Wealthy Barber, et cetera, they'll start with 10%. But in these times with this inflation, social security the way it is, pensions or lack thereof the way they are, I think 20% gross pay is a very solid metric. And I think if you're going to make a mistake, you would want to have too much saved too early and then later say, oh, I don't need all of this money in retirement. I'm going to pull some out of retirement so I have liquid, you know, assets that aren't, you know, restricted by with, you know, withdrawal rates or mandatory withdrawals. So, I mean, I think if you're going to err on the side of caution, see how much you can save and see how it feels. And you can always save less. You're not committing to investing this specific amount every single month until you die. It's not really how it works. But if you can say, hey, I realize that the dollars I invest today are going to earn more money than the dollars I invest tomorrow or next month or next year or 10 years from now, like investing more dollars today makes a ton of sense. Absolutely. If you can front load this, you will really genuinely change your life. And then you'll be in a position when you're 50 of going, well, 
Do I want to back off and invest less, spend more money, have more fun? Do I want to keep my investments the same because I'm comfortable and then maybe leave a big inheritance to my heirs or to charity? And you have options. Alternatively, if you do it the other way and you go, yeah, 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 I'll do it later, then you're in your 50s going, mm, we have to back off our expenses. We have to invest more because we're not going to be able to feed ourselves in 20 years if we don't. That's a very different situation and it feels different emotionally. So the more that you can do on the front end, the much easier things will be down the line. Absolutely. So let's talk about real estate investing. I feel like this is something that people are interested in. They're curious about it. Is it a scam? How do you end up with enough money to be able to buy properties at all? Where do you start and how do you make money in real estate investing? Most people are already real estate investors if they own a home, but they don't see it in that way. So big picture, first things first, I imagine real estate investing and the order of investments down where I put a taxable brokerage account. So when I walk through in my mind investing, I will go 401k, 403b match, Roth IRA, HSA, max out the 401k, 403b brokerage account. And in my mind, that's where investment real estate goes. You get a lot of the benefits of a brokerage account, which is flexibility, right? There's no restrictions on when you can get to your money. And it's a really nice bridge to cover expenses for an early retiree. So that's where in my mind it plugs in as I'm already doing the basic things. I'm already really maximizing my tax favored investment accounts. I'm ready for the next step and investment real estate can be awesome there. Now, we, in full disclosure, we only have one short-term rental. So I'm not an expert in this, but what I'll, you'll find if you listen to real estate people, they use a very different metric to define success. They talk about cash flow, number of units, cash flow. If you listen to non-real estate people talk about financial success, they talk about net worth. Now, the reason that real estate people don't talk about net worth is because in order to really maximize your returns, you have to be using leverage, AKA debt, AKA your liabilities will be high. So your net worth will be low, right? So it's very rare to find a real estate person mentioning success in that way. And I want you to keep that in mind as you decide what's going to be best for your personal household financial situation. In my mind, Real estate introduces additional risk. Like I have an Airbnb and it's out of state. We have a property manager and all of that set up. And really that part hasn't been particularly difficult, but there's a seasonality to it. So right now it's slow season and we have to have emergency reserves or some other source of income to cover all the expenses for this house. That's not cash flowing right now because it's a, a low season because of that. You end up where if you're someone who decided to do real estate really early on in the game, you didn't have the emergency reserves, you don't have the rest of your financial plan in place, you can't cash flow an extra mortgage every month. This becomes incredibly stressful. So I would caution people, there's a lot of hype on social media of like, you don't need any money, you can just buy a thousand rental properties, you know, have $2 million in debt, they'll cash flow, and then you can live happily ever after. But there is a little bit of, of risk that that adds to your financial situation where investing in your 401k doesn't do that. 
I will say the tax benefits are really incredible. And in terms of just like long-term tax planning, having investment real estate is clutch. So if this is something you're thinking about, get yourself in a situation where you're ready and then go ahead and, and get ready to where when you do it, you have sort of financial backing and you're not in a stressful situation. In terms of down payment, that you'll hear varied things too. There are a lot of people that do like atypical financing and get away with having these smaller down payments. In our experience, when we went to buy this, the bank said, hey, look, if you're going to a regular bank, this is a second home, right? And you need 20% down, period. There was nothing else. If you're house hacking, maybe you, and you're going to be an owner-occupied loan, you can get away without doing that. If you're doing a typical financing, you can get away without doing that. But if you're going to just go to a bank and say, hey, look, I want to buy this investment property. First off, you can't say it's owner-occupied. That's fraud. So if you're telling them the truth, hey, it's an investment property, they're going to look at you and go 20% down, which is a lot. So again, that's where, to me, that would be your brokerage money. That would be the extra money that you're going to invest in the flexible account, but instead you've decided we're going to get into this new space and we're going to put that as a down payment towards a real estate investment real estate. And is this something that like you have to be handy and like super great at decorating? Like what are you actually doing to maintain this property to make sure that like it's not being damaged? Because there's a lot more that goes into this than just like, oh, then we put up a picture on Airbnb and suddenly money starts just like flowing in. Correct. Yeah. So we bought a fully furnished property, which was very helpful in terms of the decorating. Um, outside of that, you would need to be able to kind of put a space together, to be frank, because paying for someone to do that would probably cut a lot into your um, into your profits. And then in terms of just like regular sort of day-to-day, -day, we have a property manager that goes by the property in between bookings, make sure everything's on the up and up, and we have a cleaning crew that will clean after each guest. So it'll be guest checks out, cleaning crew, property manager, new guests would be ready. You can automate a lot of the guest communication in terms of just basic info through Airbnb, but you do have to be available for questions. And of course, you can't automate a response to everything under the sun. So we'll do guest communications. We do orchestration of the person who's cleaning and the property manager, and then um, do all of the background work of sort of the business of the Airbnb because it is a business. So you have to keep books. You have to have all these records for tax purposes. Because we do have other assets, our Airbnb is in a separately structured LLC. So we have just the administrative burden of that. So that's really our part of managing it. The initial setup was very labor intensive. Getting all of the bones in place took hours. Um, honestly, I haven't added it up, but I would say north of a hundred hours. Once it's in place, you're talking about, you know, maybe an hour to a week of management outside from the occasional, you know, bad event that would occur. But the upfront part is A, expensive, and then B, labor intensive. And most real estate people will sort of openly say that, that short-term rentals in particular are heavy expense on the front end, heavy work on the front end, but they do cash flow better than long-term rentals, which is why people 
are willing to kind of make that sacrifice and do it. Mm -hmm. And as compared to a brokerage account, what kind of a return on investment? If someone's like at home and they're like, I've sort of been thinking about that. I think we're to the point where we have the margin in our lives, the money to invest, the reserves so that if something goes wrong, we can cover it. How do I know what kind of property to buy and how do I know if it's cash flowing or how much money I can expect it to make? Okay. That's a great, that's a great question. So <laughs> in terms of it's funny in this market, so I'm tracking this. We've only, we bought our Airbnb in April. It took with some remodels um, and then the administrative burden until about July to be on Airbnb and be a listing. And so I'm tracking the first year cash on cash return from April to April of it will be 2023. And I'm going to compare that to like an S&P 500 index over the same time horizon. Now, of course, the stock market's getting beat up. The bond market's getting beaten up <laughs> and real estate's been variable as well. So it'll be interesting to see the comparisons there, but that's the cash on cash return portion. So far for me, the cash on cash return portion is slightly lower than S&P index. But again, those aren't, you know, the full metric that I've been tracking. And of course it's variable based on what the stock market's doing at the time. The additional aspect that's not necessarily covered by a cash on cash return when you're looking at real estate is the tax savings and mortgage principal pay down. So there's really more to the return than just the cash on cash return. And you have to try to quantify the appreciation of the property. So if you're saying, you know, all in cash on cash return, my answer thus far is it's slightly less than an S&P index. But after meeting with our CPA, I think that the tax savings will be substantial. The property has appreciated at a reasonable rate thus far. And our mortgage principal pay down is relatively small since we're early into the life of the mortgage. So all in, I suspect that the sort of four quadrant return will be comparable, if not a little higher. But um, from a cash on cash standpoint, so far for me, it's been a little lower. Now, of course, Airbnbs are very dependent on the local market. Um, and maybe if you're a super host and your ability to sort of maximize your listing that I personally maybe haven't done yet. So this isn't to say this is a trend for everyone all the time, but that's been my personal experience. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing those numbers and your experience that you've had. I think people are curious about it and wondering, you know, what variables are there? How do you even get started? And it definitely sounds like something that if you're listening, that you would go through the first steps from that employer match right on down the list before you get to like, if you have nothing saved. If you have nothing invested, you're not like, now feels like a good time to buy a second house as an investment. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kristen, tell everyone where they can find out more if they want to find some of these calculators numbers, if they want to learn from you and connect with you more online. Sure. Um, my Instagram handle, which is where I'm at most often is strive with Kristen. And my website is strive with I have a bunch of free resources on there, but if you've been listening to this in particular and you're like, okay, what should I invest per month? I do have a free downloadable guide that will give you that answer. It is www.strivewithkristen.com slash F U money. 
I laugh at FU money because it's a, a commonly said thing of like, I want FU money where I don't have to do anything and I can middle finger to my boss and leave work or whatever. Again, it's a numerical destination and this free guide will just tell you exactly how much to invest per month to get there. Perfect. Awesome. So we will link that in the show notes and everyone should go and check out Kristen's resources online. She's a really great follow on social media. So Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. I um, appreciate you having me on and hopefully we can work together again. Well, you know me, I love a good discussion where we nerd out and talk about all things money. It is such an important reminder to take the temperature of where you are financially. Are you on track? Are you going to have enough money to do the things that you want to do in your life? If not, don't panic. Start to make minor adjustments incrementally over time and stick with it. If you are, pat yourself on the back and take a good hard look at how you're impacting those around you for the betterment of the world. That is all for now. I want to say thank you for tuning in to the PA is in. If this conversation with Kristen served you, if you felt like you got some valuable information about money, about influence, about investing, about real estate, and how you are crafting your financial future, do me a favor. Screenshot the episode, share it on social media, and head on over to iTunes. Leave us five stars and a written review. It's what helps other PAs just like you to find the show and to know that they're going to get great value out of today's episode just like you did. Until next time, this PA is out.